I think what Lollapalooza was to me was, you know, it was like sort of being on a Bon Jovi tour or something <laughs> on on one level yeah. because it was it was all these mega buses and crew and you know catering and the whole sort of shebang you know and these kind of you know rock crowds of guys with their hats on backwards and tops off and you know what I mean it was just a world that I'd never I kind of knew about but just didn't was never involved in. Hi, this is Lowell Tolhurst, co-founder of The Cure. This is Budgie, co-founder of The Creatures, drummer with The Slits, and Susie and the Banshees. Welcome to Curious Creatures. Life after punk. You may think you know the territory, but we drew the map. In your book, you say that you you kind of uh, before all the bands started, your parents were always going somewhere, uh, and, and you were changed with it. Um, and then you said at the end that, that you were kind of okay, time to stop moving around. I've had enough of that. I've done that. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're a kid and you are sort of tossed around by your parents, kind of and often the need to move you know I know people who were were from army families and you know were taken here there and everywhere because of their parents work it's um it's unsettling and I think I'm sure there are people who benefited massively from that you know who are global travelers who are comfortable in every city on earth and they felt it did them a huge amount of good for me, it just made me retreat more and more. Like on the outside, I could carry it off. I knew how to make new friends. I knew how to navigate new situations because, oh, God, here we go again. I'm the new girl at school again. Right. How do I fucking break into these friendships? How do I find a new life? How do I change my accent to fit in? Fuck, you know what I mean? Like all of that. But on the inside, I think I... Well, you're go- are you a good mimic, Mickey? Not bad, actually. I do remember even going on tour and sort of, you know, starting to soften the accent and like, (laughs) you know, just wanting to fit in. But I think on the inside, it makes you retreat quite a lot. It becomes like you, like I almost couldn't settle into anywhere and think of it as home because what's going to be next? It's going to all get disrupted. I know it is. And so I think it pulls you in two different directions. You know, on the one hand, getting quite quick at fitting in and being able to navigate it. But actually, it makes you, to me, made me more and more unsettled inside. And I think one of the big reasons why I even gravitated towards being in a band and all, because it seemed to tick all those boxes. It's like, oh, great, I get to be with these people and we're like a family and we travel together and we're in each other's pockets all the fucking time. It's going to be brilliant. (laughs) And of course it isn't. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. The the, the family. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. That's the part. That's the main part. I mean, when I I started with The the Cure, you know, I didn't really have a relationship with my dad because he was like in the Second World War, and he was a bit shell-shocked and everything, so he didn't really talk to me about anything. My mum I was close to, but then by the time I was 
22, 21, 22, she died, you know? So that's when I went off the rails completely. Mm. But the band was like my family, mm. you know? It was like a big gang and it was mm. like my family. And then, so that's very difficult when you become divorced from your family, you know, which happened. Yeah, families can be vicious, yeah. right? Right, right. And do you think, because I think that's actually, you know, in, in that respect, when I was writing about my, you know, particularly my relationship with Emma, I felt... I did feel I needed far too much from her. And did you feel that? I mean, having lost both parents, do you know what I mean? To be that isolated and then to feel that the band is your family. That's quite a lot to put on another bunch of like 21-year-olds or whatever. Yeah. And you can kind of see why, you know, that would be, you know, it's not like it's too much for them as well yeah no i think i think looking back at it i think it's far too much and i think the other thing that we should have done and 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 didn't was like first four or five years we were just like album tour album tour album tour we were with each other the whole time if we'd said hey let's just go away from each other for about three or four months we'd be much happier and we could get back together and it'd be much better but we didn't do it and nobody in the organization you know like the management of the record company wanted us to do that either because you know that was like oh we've got to got to get some more product out and yes the time is now yeah and it destroys you it destroys you really does and i mean i i know that that feeling and then i look back on that and i think well that was so stupid but you can't not do that because you you don't know anything else you don't know how to do it any other way you know so And I'm not sure that those managers and record label people, like I don't want to sort of lay too much malice on them either. Like they're just these sort of people who are workhorsing you to death. I know it like suits their agenda, but I just don't think people had that kind of language to know. You know, I think they felt like, oh, I'm fucking complaining about. You'll get to do what, you know, you're touring. It's brilliant. Every place is sold out. Why are you complaining? You're doing the thing that you love to do. And I don't think people had the language to understand that, you know, to even listen to what you're trying to say when you're saying, okay, everybody's actually starting to fucking hate each other, (laughs) (laughs) you know, or to spot the problems, you know, when people start to get a bit you know niggly with each other and and all of that to go okay i think these guys need to have a bit of a break nikki during the course of thinking about all the the time because there's a lot of your life story before the band and it's a real nice balance going through the first Lollapalooza experience, which we also share. Um, But I was going to, did you have any thoughts about two females in a band and you were very much the center? You always say, you say every time it was like, can we just get the guys out to to the pub for an hour while we do the proper photo shoot? And Susie always you know, was pushed to the front. You know, we'd go on top of the pops and there'd be a big flashing sign saying Susie, Susie, Susie. And Severin, Severin, Severin didn't really like that. And and of course it was all for one and one for all, but actually commercially it may have been simpler to have a focal point. You know, of course it was. And that's what everybody wanted, if you like. We didn't, but that's what the, the you know, the industry wanted. But, 
I'm thinking also of how many, if like female bands like the Slits, the Modettes, a lot of bands came out of that early punk period, female. There were some before as well, but not so many. And then a lot of bands later that were Elastica, Echo Belly, yourselves, um, fronted very much led female energy. And you somehow touch on it where the Blur and Pulp and Oasis and, and a lot of other bands like that kind of it reestablishes the male dominance around the music industry. And the, the female, if you like, change of pace and attitude and sound of female musicians playing together sort of isn't really tolerated. I mean, I think, that, to be honest, my issue with, you know, the female-fronted thing and the constant focus on it is that the people who are interpreting that tend to have no fucking imagination, right? So you will get Debbie Harry just sold as some sort of blonde sex pot or you will get Susie sold as some sort of feisty, you know, kind of, you know, right. in your face, whatever. It's all kind of filtered through something that I think actually knocks all the interesting corners off it. And of course, the singer is always going to be a focal point. They're the one who are vocalising the music and they're the ones singing the lyrics, right? I get that. Mm. But I do think that sort of pushing the band completely away is is missing out on what makes them more interesting yes and on even just a really dumb level right when we used to do interviews and it would be like um oh we just want to talk to mickey i'd be like i'm not being funny but chris is the funniest fucking person in this band like if you're not going to talk to chris you're missing out Mm. right because he's fucking hilarious okay Mm. Emma is the one who knows all about the fucking musical show. I don't pick up a thing from the studio. She's the one who knows what the hell went on there because I'm just thinking like, oh, God, this is so boring. So do you know what I mean? So actually, why do you just want to talk to the singer? Why do you just want... They haven't... You're going to miss all the interesting stuff about the band. And it is a band. It's not a solo artist, no, right? Right, um, right? But we know about the drummers. We know we know about the drummers being pushed <laughs> into the back, don't we, lol? Yeah. Oh, definitely. We know that. But, you know, it's it, it's very interesting what you're saying, Vicky, because it's it's something... I've just, I've just finished another book, which is more about that whole era, and I realised a lot of stuff at that time. Like, in the 70s, it was that way very, very macho and you know, misogynistic right and that those those sort of tropes become real easy to to put in and when you know goth alternative whatever came along right that changed a lot of that they had a space for people that didn't fit that that mold but it's amazing how quickly that turned around again back the other way by the time it got to Britpop, you know, which, you know, I was here for most of the time, so I didn't really experience a lot of it. But, you know, I got that feeling it's like it's gone back to the bad parts of the 70s. What the hell is that all about? You know, it's like you're you're right. You know, you would think human beings would evolve more, but, but perhaps, you know, not. They go for the easy picture, you know. If you turned into a duo rather than be a band, it was a little like Yazoo, yeah, and with with uh, Alison Moyet, Eurythmics, it worked. Erasure, there's a duo. 
soft sell. Yeah, you know, but the creatures, it worked. Creatures was like doing yeah. really well, yeah. but hang on, they, you know, it's a lot of, um, we're, we're, di- we're dish- ditching the past, but the creatures was flexible, lighter. Yeah, but again, and this is all about, this is all about public image. It's all about the press. It's yes. the way that marketing interprets you, you know, and I think to have the music that you make I mean great if you're a two-piece anyway fucking it you know what I mean brilliant wonderful if you're a solo artist fantastic if you're a band that is who you are right and it's really the lack of imagination I felt mm. of the mediators yes. that that made it harder you know some of them were great I don't want to slag everyone off but I couldn't understand why it's so difficult to just sell a band just to talk to a band it's a great thing a band you know all the sort of music i loved growing up i fucking loved both of your bands i loved the specials i loved you know x mal deutschland i loved most of the music i loved were bands Mm. right and i didn't just love the lead singer i loved the band it's not that fucking difficult you know what i mean yeah but I just felt that the people who mediate that, the people who put together the front covers, the, the marketing executives at record labels who want to package you, just didn't have the fucking imagination to do it properly. And that irritated me because I thought, I'm right. not going to kind of knock all my interesting corners off just because you don't know how to do your fucking job, you know. <laughs> right. You know, I always remember with The Cure, kind of, because I was going out to see my mum in LA, I remember when MTV kind of launched. And it was a real, you know, that there was a good kind of year when it was actually really interesting. Yes. You know, and, you know, before they just started playing the same records on a cycle, you know, on the hour, every hour, top of the hour, whatever the fuck it was, right? Right. But... You know, at first there was this sort of, yeah, I don't think America knew what the fuck was going on when they saw like Culture Club and Soft Cell and, and The Cure and Depeche Mode and suddenly, and there was just this boom. And, you know, back in England, you know, you'd get these reports of like, oh, Depeche Mode are playing stadiums and people are like, fuck off. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're joking. Four blokes from Basildon, you must be out of your mind. Like, yeah. But, you know, it kind of really took off. And, you know, I do remember the that kind of interesting contrast of, you know, the very British attitude of like taking you down pegs, you know, the music press were very into that. I mean, I think actually I do remember meeting Susie and she just spent the whole fucking time slagging off the enemy. <laughs> I wouldn't piss on them if they were on fire. Yes. Yes, that's what she said. Remember, that was yeah. aimed at everybody, be record right. company or the local journalist, yeah. whoever, yes. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, with, with justification, because when Lush was starting out, you know, and you know the kind of standard question, so what are your influences? Yeah. If I ever mentioned Susie and the Banshees, they wouldn't put it in, right. Right? right? It does feel like a fucking conspiracy. You know, they put in the Cocteau twins, sure. but they wouldn't put in the bands that didn't right. fit for them. And at the time... Or didn't play the game. Yeah, like, it, like you, there was a special tick box of, you know, bands they were happy to kind of, like, eulogise. Yeah. And I think that it was quite 
funny that sort of contrast of you know Britain being very sort of take you down pegs absolutely but in a funny way America the opposite which would be initially like really great yeah but then also kind of hey we love you guys and you know whoever the fuck you are (laughs) it's a double-edged sword but you know I remember exactly what you're talking about with MTV because I remember coming back to LA and MTV had started we've just been on MTV in, in Hell's Kitchen in this little room in New York and suddenly they they put on, you know, we'd made some videos with Tim Pope. They put them on because there was nothing else to put on. You know, there wasn't, people didn't make a video all the time. So they'd had to put us on. And suddenly there's like, you know, well, there's those guys with the spiky hair and, uh, you know, lipstick and things and that. But they put us on, you know, they took a chance and did it, you know. And then we came back to play in L.A. and suddenly it was all, you know, screaming girls and stuff but before we'd had like very serious young men you know, <laughs> studying how we play things and stuff and uh, I, I think Pearl Pearl Thompson said it to me he said well at least they give you a chance in America and that's true because I think the English you know Morrissey don't often say good great things about him but one thing he did get right was you know we hate it when our friends are successful right whatever that's a very English attitude you know they want to don't want you to be rise above your station you know we 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 came out of um, our British audience as much as they loved us you know we had to fight to be on the stage you know that it wasn't it wasn't a done deal but when we first arrived in America there was a lot of cigarette lighters now it's mobile phones but it was a sea of cigarette lighters and thinking god they they really like us what's going on there was no antagonism (laughs) not used to this no but you you had we were on the first Lollapalooza tour and so we were the only British band and we had Jane's Addiction of course who were headlining their own tour and we were second on the bill and Susie was the only female performer and we sort of felt like a fish out of water in many ways. I suddenly, I, my first uh, impression was all these drummers had all been to drum corps. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They all knew the paradiddles and <laughs> drag stroke, 16 stroke rolls and things. And they were, they were practicing on rubber pads before they went on stage and, and playing together. And I thought, what is all this? What a strange tour it was, the Lollapalooza tour, and and your experience. I, I'm kind of curious how you, how their whole shtick was quite professional. Do you know what I I had? I remember Ivo actually, who ran 4AD, saying, you know, he went through a period with 4AD where it was like the Pixies and throwing knees, American bands, and he sort of made this comment that there's, you know, that that whether you call it a professionalism or a kind of, you know, very like they're musicians, you know, and he said, when you're around those bands, they never put a guitar down. They're always like, have you got a guitar? You know, they want one in their hotel room and all of that. And he kind of got, he kind of denigrated British bands with that because he said like, oh, fucking hell, you know, dragging them into a studio or whatever, you know, they're just pissing around and playing pool and whatever. So there was this sort of serious edge to that. And I do think that is possibly true, you know, that 
as you say, there's a kind of maybe partly because there's a kind of status in America as a musician. Sure. You know, there's a long tradition of, you know, whether you look at blues or jazz or whatever, you know, there's a sort of professionalism to music, which actually most of the punk rock bands or the post-punk bands certainly were, you know, like it was so uncool, you know. It's like, I'm going to sit here and practice in front of you and like, hey, yeah, I've written a new song, everyone. Do you want me to play it? Fuck off. Like <laughs> <laughs> The closest we'd been to anything like that would be like uh, me and a lot of others had come from art school. Well, that's where we met. We went to art college to make a band. Could be, and, but art college wasn't seen as the stepping stone to a career. It was like, so what are you going to do? When you finish your college, what are you going to do? I don't know. It's just a kind of good stopgap. And uh, joining a band certainly wasn't going to be a career. But the thing I noticed certainly at the Lollapalooza was all the accountants and managers <laughs> right, yeah. cracking champagne in the bar at the end of the night going, this is great. <laughs> well, you're, you're right, actually. It's seen as a bit more of a, a, a respectable profession here, you know. You know, I think probably in 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 England, you know, the, the sure sign is, you know, how, how many big venues are there, or proper music venues in London, you know, when you consider how much money all the musicians in England make for the government, you know. I mean, I think I think maybe maybe it's more to do with the idea that in in Britain, I think, whereas in America, there's more of a kind of you know an underclass tradition of music that i think is actually very well respected i think if you were you know in the sort of 80s or whatever yeah you know like classical music or if you're in fucking yes or something like that those were the people who kind of were like trained and noodled about and Mm, showed off their proficiency whereas bands that was like anathema you know you just you were reacting against that kind of elitism and it was always tied to a bit of an elite whereas I do think in America it was respected because it was from the underclass you know and I'm not sure that we really had that in Britain Um, and so I can you know and I think that's why we have that rebelliousness of like you know we're not going to sit here you know so it's quite weird now you know there's all sorts of you know Brighton Institute of Music and there's all these professional organizations that are now kind of training people you know and young people are doing courses and all Mm. of that and it still feels a little bit jarring it feels like really (laughs) you know don't you just but I understand there's a space for that it's just I think for the likes of you and and me I would argue that we probably all feel a little bit sort of "Mm," about that (laughs) you know because it's just not the culture we're from. I remember the uh, butthole servers in Lollapalooza came into Susan the Banshee's dressing room and go, you guys got butter? (laughs) All they had was brandy and beer. Right. We had brandy and beer, but we had mixers and soft drinks and (laughs) towel in bathrobes and things like this because we we smuggled them from the hotel. Right. But they had had just their cabin, their porter cabin. It was like a porter loo. It It was a chaos. But... I remember that it was the first time I'd seen other bands on on a big scale, like Living Colour and Ice Tea and Nine Inch Nails. But I'd seen other bands going through the motions of a day to prepare for a show, and we saw it every day because 
the first was the Lollapalooza you were on was it touring yeah so it, we were 92 we were the second one so I think you were on the first one yeah weren't you? yeah yeah so it was still a touring festival so you were all on your yeah. buses and you were all hoping you made it to the next town and some people didn't and and then the buses corralled in a circle somewhere in a field and it was really like a big posse in the team but it was just strangest thing going like oh my god they're like us it's not we're not again it's it's not just our crazy world that we've invented you know there are because i would never seen that in britain we never got that close to other bands right you'd only meet them on the m1 i mean i know what you mean as in as in like the traveling circus element where you're seeing the same people every day and certainly not in that volume I think what Lollapalooza was to me was like, you know, it was like sort of being on a Bon Jovi tour or something <laughs> on on one level yeah, right. because it was it was all these mega buses and crew and you know catering and the whole sort of shebang you know right. and these kind of you know rock crowds of guys with their hats on backwards and tops off and you know what I mean it was just a world that I'd never I kind of knew about but just didn't was never involved in so it was kind of I think I was trepidatious oh nice you know I did think I think I I was sort of I mean frankly I was quite scared initially because I just thought this is nine weeks you know if this is not going to be fun, it's going to be fucking really hard work, you know. Um, but actually, everyone's lovely, you know, yeah. especially the crew. The crews are great, right? Yeah. And I'm always someone who likes hanging out with crew because they just don't have, I don't have to tiptoe around people's egos or whatever. They're generally just you, you soon, you know, there to do a that's job. That's the other and, thing. You soon spotted the egos. Yeah. I, you knew it, yeah. It's yeah. like I, I just, I'm very awkward with, you know, people who are very famous and also want to be treated as very famous because I will right. invariably put my foot <laughs> in it. So I tend to just... <laughs> Just think, Joe, I'm just going to save you the trouble. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll just yeah. steer clear. Yeah. Well, I think that's an admirable trait, actually. Yeah, you know, it's it's true. We all live on the same planet. But it was, but it was brilliant. You know, it was it was a really. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I had an absolutely brilliant time. I did completely lose yeah. control of myself by the end of it. Oh yes, because you you did a stage dive. Yeah. Just, <laughs> Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and you know that's yeah. part of the problem. I think that there is that idea of going on this tour. Don't forget, we were first on, so yeah. that's got trouble written all over it. The whole day then to to wind yeah. down. Yes. Four p.m. I'm done, yeah. and it's like rider, endless yeah. temptations. Yeah. 150 people to mingle with and and completely lose your mind with <laughs> it was no better mickey it was no better going on just before jane's went on and the whole place erupted them there were bonfires for as far as the eye could see because when they finished it was like then the party started you know and you just didn't get to sleep at all yeah. well i didn't you just reminded me though it's it's like every festival when we first played festivals obviously we were like you know first on the bill or whatever and you're right it's like you know 
that's a recipe for disaster, you know. And then uh, later on, when you're headlining the festival, then you've got to stay good for the whole day because otherwise, you know, you won't be able to get on stage. So yeah. can't win. <laughs> I was just going to say, I think on that Lollapalooza, I, I, gosh, I mean, I lost my mind. I think both, I could probably speak for the ex-wife as well. I think she was, you know, and, and it, she, it was, it was really hard work and it was nerve shattering. And I think our need to, certainly mine, let me speak for myself. It was like, I wanted to indulge and experience everything as if it was absolutely, I've got to really go there. I couldn't take a step back and just be like the crew doing a job. There had to be something out of the ordinary about all this. And so in that sense, it gave me everything I wished for. And it also at the same time scared the life out of me because I thought, I could. I don't think I could keep this up, you know, right. on the, on this level of of, of stadium uh, of organizational bullshit, you know, that, that was going on, and uh, that was a different way, not of music, but a di- different way of looking at business in a way. Coming from where I came from, it, it, it was unreal. It, none of it really made any sense. You know, it just. But but what do you mean, like organisational bullshit? Like what? So it was. We, we just thought the whole thing was a bit of a, a show, and we'd never seen ourselves as showmen in that way, show people. I mean, I I know what you mean. It was a very kind of tailored experience on on the kind of performance level, I did feel that this is quite weird. Like, I can't really tell whether we're any good, actually. You know what I mean? It's sort of this very distanced kind of, the crowds over there, their seats, they kind of turn up and, you know, I mean, I I can remember, I, I mean, I would go out after we played and I'd watch all the other bands um, and, and I'd get people coming up to me like asking for autographs and and I would actually go you don't even know who I am do you and they're like no but you were on stage like just now (laughs) and I was like okay um so yeah there was a kind of sort of weird like falseness to it in that I was very much used to playing in front of people who were very musically curious who would you know who would engage with the music or whatever this did feel like I don't know you might as well have just projected a screen or whatever and people would have well they've paid their money so I'm going to have my beer I'm going to buy the merch and I'm going to watch whatever the fuck you throw at me and it's like a day out isn't it at a fun fair or something now I'm not trying to sort of slag off the audience I'm sure there were people there who fucking you know found bands they'd never known and and thought the Mary Chain were amazing and they'd never heard of them before because they'd come see Pearl Jam, whatever, you know what I mean? Right. But it was a a kind of different level of, of, you know, that kind of show, which, you know, on the one hand, I found sort of, I mean, I kind of went with it, you know, it is what it is. You're in a situation, it's it's nine week tour, you throw yourself into it. But I know what you mean. I I think if that had been my entire experience of ever being in a band, I I think it would have been pretty odd. Mm, Odd. And not particularly satisfying. Yeah. You know, there's something about more of a connection that's missing, I think. 
Curious Creatures is created and presented by Lol Tolhurst and Budgie. Producer, Joe Wong. Producer and audio designer, Dan Didier. Executive producer, Mark Cates. Associate producer, Sophie Wilde. Digital marketing, Margie Taylor. Art and logo design, Justin Thomas K. Music production, Jackknife Lee. Curious Creatures is on the web and you can access us at www.curiouscreaturespodcast.com And you can reach us on Instagram and Facebook at Curious Creatures Official, Twitter at Cure Creatures. To find more of the best music podcasts, visit doubleelvis.com or follow at doubleelvis on Instagram or at doubleelvis on Twitter. Curious Creatures is a production of LXB LLC 2022.